Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Most of the teams in the NBA have now hit the 41 game mark, which means that we are at the midway point of the season. So we are going to revisit the awards after we did those at the quarter season mark. So I'm here today with Tyler Metcalf and Jeremy Stevens. Tyler, how are you doing? Doing great, Nick. Happy to be back on. Crazy that we're already about halfway through the season here. And Jeremy, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. The Celtics are down six, so my mood might change throughout the podcast, depending on if we can beat this terrible Pistons team. Well, we'll have to make sure that we record only if they lose. And then, you know, if they win, we can sort of cut out the ending audio from that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get started with the MVP discussion. It might surprise all of you to hear that we all agreed on the leading candidate for MVP. Giannis has built on his ridiculous season from last year to reach even more ridiculous echelons this year. He's just recently fallen under 30 points per game for the season, but he's been averaging 30 pretty much all year long and a little under 13 rebounds a game, a little over five assists a game. He's now actually shooting five three-pointers a game. He's not hitting that many of them, only 33%, but just him having the threat of that shot versus him in previous years has obviously had a huge impact on his game. And of course, he's also one of the best defensive players in basketball as well. So... Tyler, did you really even consider anyone else for this top spot? Not really. And what he's doing is pretty historic. And the 30 points in 30 minutes, no one's ever done before scoring a point a minute while, you know, about 13 rebounds and almost six assists. It's just otherworldly numbers. Um, And he just is, he's the identity of that team. They're built around him. um, And he's the main reason that they have a net rating of about 12, which is another just absolutely absurd number. Yeah. You know, if you look at the Bucks roster, it's good. Obviously there's plenty of quality players on there. They have two Lopez's and Middleton, et cetera. Giannis has to be really, really good though, for that team to be on pace for like 70 wins. I think they still are on pace for 70 wins. So when, when a team doesn't have, I guess Middleton's kind of borderline all-star, but generally when a team doesn't have a second all-star and they're still ridiculous, that's a pretty good like measuring stick for how good their best player is. So we we know almost more definitively than any other player in the league that Giannis is absurd. He's somehow one of the league's best rim protectors, in addition to covering a lot of ground for them on the defensive end as someone who switches and rotates. It's just astounding to me that he's basically Shaq with a handle and is now developing a three-point shot. And even Shaq himself has said in a recent interview, you know, if I were in the NBA today, I would be Giannis. And that kind of does make sense if you watch video of Orlando Shaq back in the day, you know, when he was a super athlete. And obviously he was still a ridiculous athlete when he weighed like 350 plus pounds. But in Orlando, he was like in the 270 range and just ran up the floor like a deer. And now, of course, we have someone, you know, wearing the deer who runs up and down the court like Shaq did. And Giannis is pretty much the only person in NBA history since they started tracking this. So, you know, after, say, the 90s or so in terms of paint scoring per game. There almost aren't enough words to describe how superlatively ridiculous his performance has been. It kind of feels like we had to track things because Shaq existed, but then we immediately moved out of an era where we even care about half the things Shaq does. And now just out of nowhere, we have a use for it again. So it's kind of funny how that worked out. 
he, he's just impossible to stop. I mean, he's agile, he's strong, he's fast, his Eurostep covers about 20 feet, um, and he can guard anyone at the on the floor at a really high level. I mean, defensively, he's in the 86th percentile in points allowed per possession. Um, and when you're doing that on one end and then scoring a point a minute on the other end, I mean, how, how can you be anything other than the most dominant player in the league? Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Well, one time a bride. James Harden comes in at second place for me, and this was a pretty easy choice as well. Although, as all of you will hear later on, we did have a little bit of disagreement on our number two spot. Harden is averaging nearly 38 points per game, and after basically just chucking up a lot of shots in the early season to get to 40 points per game, he's now shooting slightly less frequently and has dramatically boosted his efficiency since the first month or so of the season. And he's doing all of this with, honestly, if we're being entirely fair and honest, a worse backcourt partner in Russell Westbrook this season as compared to Chris Paul last year. Should I go second because I put someone different? <laughs> sure, go for it. I uh, I had to pick LeBron because there's sort of a parallel for me between this Giannis and LeBron thing where LeBron has like a really bad version of the Bucks around him and they're also on pace to win a million. Actually, they had a, a sort of a four-game losing streak, so maybe they're not on that pace, but just the entire reason Dwight Howard's good this year is LeBron getting him open for dunks. They signed guys like... Bradley, Rondo, McGee, that a lot of people doubted. And it's not even that any of them are doing anything like exceptionally different. It's just how much the floor opens up because LeBron's on the floor at the same time. Obviously, Anthony Davis is a big deal too, but he's hurt all the time. So now we see it really through the the LeBron lens again. So obviously Harden's incredible. Every year I have to I have to justify somehow thinking other players are better than him. And with just how bad I still think the rest of the Lakers roster is it's it's it feels impossible to to attribute it to anything other than LeBron as a teammate so that's why I put him ahead Tyler as the greatest James Harden fan that I've ever met in my life (laughs) you also had him at number two on your ranking so why did you have him ahead of LeBron or other potential contenders for that number two spot all right, I'm going to try and keep this positive, so I may be short. But I mean, just what what he's doing scoring the basketball we've never really seen before. I and mean, he's the only player in NBA history to score 37 points a game while shooting 35% from three. Only Will Chamberlain, who did it three times, and Elgin Baylor, who did it once, have averaged more points a game than him. Um, and he, he is that team's offense. And... Now we've seen him play in a couple different styles over the past couple of years with uh, Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook, where their pace was towards the bottom of the league last year. And now this year with Russ, they've adapted to his skill set, and they're one of the fastest teams in the league this year. Um, and so it's just a testament to Harden and his individual skill and ability to score, which is you know, one of the best we've ever seen in the NBA. It says a lot about Giannis, honestly, that Harden is going to average above 35 points. I'm pretty confident in that. He's going to average above 35 points for a second consecutive season, and he's still almost certainly not going to be the MVP. And I think part of that is the rings culture and the fact that Harden has flamed out in the playoffs makes people, even if they don't want to acknowledge it, I'm willing to bet it makes people less willing to vote for him for MVP. But when I was sort of looking at this and trying to determine where I would rank various players, I don't think it's as much of a knock on Harden at all as it is just yet another exclamation of how 
thoroughly out of bounds of normalcy Giannis's performance has been. I think um, you mentioned the playoffs. Like Giannis has had his troubles too there. I think Harden's greatest disadvantage, as we've sort of alluded to a little bit, is like that everyone hates him. And his the, the way he plays is such an analytics-based approach, right, as it should be, given who their GM is and what the league is right now. But like so much of the MVP award is fan-driven or narrative-driven. It's not fan-driven. It is narrative-driven. And a lot of the value that he adds is drawing fouls and shooting free throws, which nobody likes watching. So if if you're a reporter with a vote in today's in today's world and you're trying to push Harden as like an MVP candidate, the casual fans gonna tell you you're stupid and you don't watch basketball, even if it's like if all the analytics check out. So I, I do think just his style of play is gonna is gonna kind of work against him in that sense. So I had LeBron at number three on my theoretical midseason ballot. The Lakers are a 13.3 net rating with LeBron James on the court so far this season and a negative 0.4 with him off the court. The Lakers are negative when LeBron James sits and they're currently 33 and seven. He's also leading the league in assists for the first time in his career at over 10 assists for, again, the first time in his career. He's playing better defense than, honestly, he has since maybe his second season in Cleveland, give or take. So, I mean, it's hard for me to put him any lower than third, but Tyler, since you did, in fact, put him lower than third, why did you have Luka ahead of LeBron on your ballot? Yeah, so I knew it was really just a coin flip for me for these two spots, um, and really just what broke it for me was... um, their their supporting cast and you know what they've kind of done um and and i guess maybe that's not the best way to look at it but i mean luca's still averaging 29 nine and a half rebounds and nine assists so and he's almost averaging a triple double he has the highest scoring triple doubles um for someone his for someone his age and his you know quote-unquote star next to him and Porzingis has struggled and missed time. So I just, how Lucas accelerated the, the Mavs timeline so quickly and so dramatically this year, um, I think is a real testament to his skill and just how he makes everyone else around him so much better. So Jeremy, as we've discussed, you had James Harden at three, LeBron at two and Luca at four. So maybe we can talk about Luca now. I also had him at number four. There is a degree of splitting hairs with honestly any of the top four candidates, although I would argue that Giannis has pretty thoroughly distanced himself at this point. But I mean, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Luca because it's just going to make me depressed. But he's been, once again, you know, the fact that he was the best player in a professional league, the second best professional league in the world as a teenager, you know, maybe could have indicated to you that he's a pretty good basketball player. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like post stuff on Twitter like every other day, I think, about teams passing on Luca because I, I just like. Yeah, Jesus, there's like this draft Twitter sort of like culture that's developed, right? And I'm not saying that all the draft nerds get it right every time, but it got to such a point where it was such a no-brainer for one group, and then the people actually in charge of drafting had it like from a different perspective. But whatever. As far as the MVP thing, he he checks all the boxes of like, uh, you know, stats check, leading his team to a good record that they wouldn't be anywhere near if they didn't have him check. 
he's just doing it all while being, I guess, just worse at defense than the guys ahead of him. Well, Harden's not much of a defender, but Harden's defense isn't even that bad this year from what I've sort of seen. My point being, he does what these other guys do, but just less because the other guys are so ridiculous. So I, I think it's a pretty big drop-off and uh, not a slight to him at all to put him a little lower. I, I just don't get why you guys think Luca's trash when you have him at four. I mean, that seems <laughs> aggressive. And, uh, you know, sh- shout out to the Hawks for taking their tiny point guard who doesn't even try on defense. So glad they got their point guard of the future instead of Luca. I just expected a little more. Thank you for shouting out the other team that didn't take Luca. I'm, I'm very <laughs> happy about that. I'd let you pass on this one. Well, we all agreed at who we have at number five on our ballots, although I will note that Jeremy literally wrote huge gap in front of his name on the sheet that we're using for this podcast. But Nikola Jokic, who after an absolutely brutal November where he looked like he neither cared about basketball nor was in any sort of shape to play basketball, he is pretty much at the same numbers that he was at last year after you know having actually played so much better over the course of December and January. And to that point, the Nuggets are currently tied for second in the West at 27 and 12. And if you're talking about the teammates argument, as we did when sort of splitting hairs between some of the candidates higher up the ballot, I don't think there's another all-star on this Denver roster. And it's basically just Jokic running things on the offensive end and at least being in position enough on the defensive end to not completely wreck their defense. And their defense has slipped recently after being in the top three for a lot of the first couple months of the season. But ultimately, Jokic is not hurting his team as much as you would expect from a pretty thoroughly groundbound center, and his offensive impact is hard to overstate. Yeah, I, I just like... I would rather leave this spot blank. You know, I said there was a drop-off to fourth to Luca. There's, like, the same drop-off times three between him and any other candidate. As soon as I see someone like Jokic, and athletes are human, I'm not trying to be one of those, you know. But, um, you know, as soon as I see a, someone play like they don't care, I'm just kind of off of it for that season. So I, I just – I would just leave five blank. But if it had to be someone, it would be Jokic. I'll fill in Carson Edwards on your behalf. That is fine. Carson Edwards thighs specifically. Yeah, and I feel like we, you know, you could really go with a handful of players here. Um, but I, Jokic just kind of made the most sense for me. I and mean, it's not, he, he's been good. He's been better. He looks like he actually cares about basketball and has gone from horrendous shape to just being in really bad shape. Um, but I mean, his offensive impact is obvious. The way he controls the, controls the floor and is able to pick out his teammates on cuts or when they're relocating on the perimeter is incredibly impressive. It's the best defensive rating since his rookie year. Um, obviously a lot more goes into that, but he's just kind of controlling that team. And without him, I don't think there'd be anywhere near the top of the West. I had Pascal Siakam in the fifth spot at the quarter mark of the season. And I think if he'd played more in the next 20 games or so, I would have had him here at fifth again, but he just missed too much time for me to be able to put him in that slot. And ultimately for me, it was sort of, you know, not exactly as easy a choice at five as it was to sort of figure out who the top four was and then order them from there. Yeah, I would I would agree on um I would have had Siakam pretty easily too, but if you don't play enough games, it's just not gonna happen. 
I feel like the same case can be made for, you know, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, too. I mean, it, it's a lot of these superstar guys on teams that are playing well that have just kind of missed enough time where they just kind of take themselves out of the running. But um, if they would have been there, I would have been fine with Siakam, Anthony Davis, Kawhi, really any of those guys in that spot. Yeah, I think really games played is the only factor that would have kept Kawhi out of the top five for me. I think it's pretty indisputable that he's a top five player when he's healthy and he puts up top five MVP candidate kind of numbers when he actually is on the floor, but he just isn't on the floor enough. Sort of similar to Siakam, except unfortunately with Leonard, it seems like that's going to be more of a long-term kind of thing. But let's move on to defensive player of the year. So both of you had a different player in the top slot from me. So I will let the two of you wax eloquent about Jeremy's favorite player. Certainly, certainly plays for his favorite team, Anthony Davis. Yeah. It, it, uh, God. Ugh. All right, fine. I watch a lot of Lakers games because they're on TV all the time. And I just can't. It's just like this game warping thing. It's it's a little bit similar to how I feel about Gobert. Not that they play the same way, but players take bad shots just because they know Anthony Davis is nearby. And any player who just averts how they play for no reason, just at the idea that a player might be standing near them, you're automatically a top five defender in my book. So Anthony Davis is one of those guys, kind of guy that just like, how do I put it? Sorry, I'm stumbling on this. It's hard for you to compliment Lakers, I understand. <laughs> I mean, it's as painful <laughs> as that is. I'm not trying to disregard stats, but the defense is such an eye test thing, and it's just such a game warping. It's, it, yeah, it's basically what I already said. It's the way players play around him and feel like they have to even when the, he's not right by them. So that, that, to me, just puts them right there. There's never more than like two or three players in the league ever who make players play that way. So I think that just makes him the clear-cut best defender. Just this season. All three of my picks for Defensive Player of the Year, and we will get to those, but all three of them would make my top five list of guys who force players to take ridiculously off-balance 13-foot floaters because they can't even conceive of trying to challenge these guys at the rim. Yeah, and Jeremy, you touched on the eye test with AD, and I I kind of talked about this with Giannis a little earlier, and AD can just cover anyone on the floor, and whenever he switches onto someone, that person is looking to get rid of the ball because it's always a mismatch against them, and he can battle in the post with any big. He moves his feet on the perimeter, he closes out like a wing, and I I, I know de- defensive numbers are or can be a little misleading, but among big men, he's in the 89th percentile in block rate, 90th percentile in steal percentage, only allowing 0.786 points per possession, which is in the 91st percentile, all while being in the 88th percentile in foul rate. So he's one of the best defenders, forces turnovers, doesn't allow baskets, and doesn't foul. And he just it's incredible what he does on the defensive end. You know, it's funny because what you just said, with the exception of the can defend anybody, pretty much all of it applies to the person who I had at number one on my list, who is Rudy Gobert. And I think I'm willing to admit that part of that is because over the last quarter of the season, so basically since the last time we did this podcast, the Utah Jazz have been basically the hottest team in basketball. And their defense has shot up dramatically during that time as well. But ultimately, when you have Rudy Gobert on the floor, all you really need are for the 
other four defenders on the floor to just play their position adequately because if anybody gets past any of those guys, you know that you're going to have Rudy Gobert back there at the rim. And he, at one point, was allowing less than 50% on shots within six feet of the rim. I don't know if that's still the case, but he's always one of the NBA's best players in terms of just limiting players from scoring effectively at the rim. And that's pretty much the most important thing you can do in basketball, and he does it better than pretty much anybody. He's definitely still the best room protector in the league. Um, and I, I don't think that's even debatable um, anymore. And the, the only reason I put him at third behind AD and Giannis is really because of the versatility on defense. And I, I still don't think he's super reliable when he gets pulled away from the rim. Whereas when AD and Giannis do, they can lock that guy down still. And Gobert is still just a little too heavy footed to be out on the perimeter. But when He's in the paint. Teams aren't even looking to to even bother challenging at the rim. I just wanted to say for Gobert, because I only have like two things to say about him. Not even two things. One thing is that any other top-tier defender, how I would describe him, like I just described Davis, applies to Gobert. But I totally agree that around the perimeter, he gets roasted. So he just automatically drops lower on the list. So Tyler and I both had Giannis at number two. Jeremy, to make it up to you earlier after making jabs about the Los Angeles Lakers fandom that you secretly harbor, (laughs) I'm letting you loose. Talk to us about Marcus Smart. Let me tell you something. I'm watching the Southeast get waxed by a terrible team right now, but let's talk about it. Marcus Smart just chased Derrick Rose around for 15 seconds, switched on to Andre Drummond, and took a charge. There are not a lot of guys in the league who can legitimately guard five positions. Marcus Smart legitimately guards five positions every year he's averaged at least 1.5 steals except for his second season where he averaged 1.3 right now he has more steals than turnovers he has 44 steals 37 turnovers minus whatever's happened in this game and i think taking charges is just such a big deal in the nba by the way i know he's not it's like almost a joke that i put him on the list i don't care Clearly, you don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Taking charges is like such a premium skill in this league. I like that he guards all five positions. I think having an oversized guard or a wing who can do that is is more valuable. This I do believe. His defensive skill set is legitimately more valuable than having almost any center on your team. It's just that the, the AD Gobert defense is so absurd, and Giannis is basically uh, a guard who's 10 feet tall that, um, that they... they it just doesn't matter because they're so good. But it, it, if you could pick any one skill set in the NBA, it would be Smart's defensive skill set on like a six and a half foot guy. So if he was taller, he'd he'd make the miss the list like automatically. But he's a guard, so it's a little tougher. But the skill set is just as worthy as anyone to be on like an all defensive team. So number two on my list, and I don't feel bad about it one bit. All right then. Well. You and Tyler, as you've both already said, had Rudy Gobert at number three. I had Anthony Davis at number three. I totally agree with the points that both of you outlined earlier. But ultimately, for me, this isn't really even a defensive argument as much as it is an offensive argument. But it still does trouble me a little bit that the Lakers are net negative with LeBron off the court. And maybe that's, you know, a bit fair to ding him on. But honestly, I thought the top three was very, very close. And of course, I had Marcus Smart at fourth on my list, and he just barely missed the cutoff. You know, if we'd made it a five-person ballot, he definitely would have been on there, I promise you. As he should be. 
I, I feel like you like your AD um, skepticism. Maybe that's not the right word, but you get what you, you get what I mean. Is more of an indictment on you know the Lakers' other quote unquote stars and guys like Kyle Kuzma and Alex Caruso that they're just a really flawed roster. And when you take the second best player off the floor, production is going to fall off a bit. Um, I also really like the Marcus Smart selection. Um, I at the quarter year, I believe I had him in the first or second slot for defensive player of the year. Um, and his versatility is incredible. He never stops working. Um, I just dropped him because the Jazz have really surged here on defense lately, and Smart missed that series of games with that nasty eye infection. I don't think people know. I'm surprised it didn't get like more attention, not as if the Celtics need more attention, but like Marcus Smart was blind for like a week, and it kind of went under the radar if you weren't a Celtics fan. I'm just surprised it didn't get more coverage, but that's fine. Not everyone needs to know that Marcus Smart was almost blind, I guess. Moving on to Rookie of the Year, I think it's going to shock all of our listeners to hear that we agreed on the number one slot. I only have a number one slot. This rookie class sucks. (laughs) Yes, Jeremy has literally not filled out a single other (laughs) slot for Rookie of the Year. (laughs) What's the point? I mean, you're not wrong. But let's at least talk about this truly exceptional so far rookie class, but... Someone who actually has been truly exceptional so far this season has been John Morant. The Memphis Grizzlies are somehow in the eighth seed in the West right now, and about 90-ish percent of that can be attributed to two rookies and (laughs) Jaron Jackson. But Ja is averaging 18 points, seven assists a game. He just came off his truly absurd performance against the Houston Rockets where he basically demolished their chances of winning with an absurd fourth quarter. And he's already one of the 10, 15 most exciting players in the league to watch. And he challenges people with the kind of fearlessness that I haven't really seen since. It's almost like he's a combination of Russell Westbrook and John Wall in terms of, I will go at you at 110% speed, a hundred percent of the time. And it's just spectacular to watch. And even more than being spectacular to watch, he's obviously had a huge positive impact on this Grizzlies team. Yeah, the athleticism, I, I like your comparisons. He kind of reminded me of a young Derrick Rose with a three-point shot. Here's the thing. I kind of just thought, so like, get ready for more Celtics talk. As a Celtics fan, I kind of have to be aware of what the Grizzlies are doing because we have their pick. Uh, was it like top six protected right now and unprotected next year or something like that? Um, I legitimately thought the Grizzlies would just be bad this year and next year because it's so hard to win with young players and they're in the Western Conference. And he's just so good. <laughs> he's they, They've already gotten to the eighth seed. So um, clear best player on a playoff team and like a gauntlet conference. So it's not even close between him and anyone else. I didn't list anyone else because I'm just not even aware of any other rookies that I would consider for an all-star team. Not that Morant's going to make it because the West is like the death knell, but... Yeah, I think it's just pretty clear that it's him. I think it says a whole lot about this rookie class that the player that Tyler and I put at number two, because, you know, we actually filled out more than one slot for this, is an undrafted player in Kendrick Nunn, who's certainly fallen off after a hot start, but is a key contributor for a Miami team that is maybe the most surprising team in the league, currently at third in the Eastern Conference. So, you know, give him at least some credit for 
contributing to that team and honestly being a rotation player for a top tier playoff team is almost enough to get you on the rookie of the year ballot on its own. Kendrick Nunn has been, I think, one of one of the best stories of the year, going from a G League guy to undrafted, or where the, uh, the I believe the Heat um, signed him to like a four day contract or something at the end of last year, so they would have first rights to him over the summer, um, and now he's the starting point guard for one of the top teams in the East, and he's averaging fifteen points, three and a half assists, and shooting thirty four percent from three. Um, it's just really cool that someone literally came out of nowhere um, and is worked his butt off and is now a starter on you know a playoff contender in the East. I do feel obligated to note that a huge part of the reason why Kendrick Nunn, quote unquote, came out of nowhere and went undrafted was because he had to leave school after domestic violence issues. So. Just wanted to you know put that out there for the record, but he has certainly been a good story on the basketball front. I, I would have considered him, but maybe this viewpoint's outdated. I just saw him really cool off after that hot start, and he's 24 years old, so it doesn't really put him on the radar for me. And not, not not that he's not a true rookie, especially Ben Simmons won it in his second year in the league anyway, so who cares? But I thought, I don't know, I thought he dropped off a little bit. But I did see him the other night, and he was good, so, you know, I guess it's sort of a give and take. Number three on my ballot, I had Tyler and my collective basketball son, Brandon Clark, who is one of the most efficient offensive players in the league and already one of the best defensive rookies we've seen in a long time. He, in addition to Ja, is a significant part of why this Memphis Grizzlies team is competing for a playoff spot at all. And again, it's just remarkable to watch him basically do exactly what he did in his last season at Gonzaga in the NBA, almost as if that should be surprising to some people. It's crazy that good players tend to translate and continue to be good players. I mean, all the guys ever done is rebound, block shots, play defense, and play hard. And that's exactly what he's doing now. And his improved shooting form that we saw last year at Gonzaga is just continuing to the NBA. Um, he's got a great touch on his floaters. I love this kid. The fact that he fell to the 20s where the Grizzlies were then able to trade back up for him is offensive. And a lot of the talent evaluators in the NBA should be absolutely ashamed ashamed of themselves. Yes, yeah, some folks I follow on Twitter, a lot of them really wanted the Celtics to take him at 14 when we get Romeo. Again, it's one of those things. It's, it's kind of unfair to compare because like, the draft nerds don't get held accountable because they don't actually draft anyone. So it's sort of unfair to be like, well, the Twitter guy's got it right again. But... um. Just just wanted to note, you know, he was definitely on some people's radar. Tyler, you had Jared Culver at number three on your list. And not to be mean, but that might be more of a homer pick than Marcus Smart. Yeah, well, I get one of them. So <laughs> recently he started playing really well. This is probably more well-wishing for what the rest of the year could could contain. I mean, his shooting numbers are just offensively bad. Um, and he's like in the low 40% percent for from the uh, free throw line, which is really bad. But and he's attacking the rim more. He's his passing's improved, and he's looking like a really solid defender among combo guards. He's in the 97th percentile in block rate and the 72nd percentile in steal rate. So he started forcing a lot of turnovers recently, especially, and kind of 
turning those into easy transition buckets. So it's probably more of a hopeful pick of what I, you know, would like to see continue. Um, but for as an overall talent for this last draft, I think when all's said and done, um, I think Culver will probably be the third best player out of this draft. Jeremy, for rookie of the year, I'm going to put your number two choice as Carson Edwards' left thigh and his number three choice. You're, you're going to pick Carson Edwards' right thigh. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it works because, again, on the Ben Simmons system, we can just have him win next year through some technicality. So it checks out. So I did not expect at all that either of you would agree with my number one pick for sixth man of the year. In fact, I thought I was going to get excoriated for it and have to defend myself. But I have Montrez Harrell as the leading sixth man of the year candidate so far this year. His defense is at least semi-passable at this point, which makes him miles better on the defensive end than his fellow Clippers contender for this award, who almost certainly is going to win it again. But I just wanted to give Trez a shout out because he's so much fun to watch playing. He's averaging 19 points a game, a little over seven rebounds a game. He's looked much better as a passer in the short roll than he has in previous years. And the Clippers are a really, really good team, despite the fact that Kawhi and Paul George have both missed significant time. And a lot of that comes down to their bench. And when you're talking about their bench, you have to talk about Montrez and Lou. And I just want to put Montrez first because Lou's already got a bunch of these and I want Montrez to win one. Um, I'm kind of just biased, to be honest with you. I do think Montrez is really, really good, but it's just one of those things like my favorite non-Celtics teams to watch right now are the Grizzlies and Montrez Harrell because they it's just pure hustle so and he's just legitimately really good for a bench player i love the 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 clippers dynamic of not trying to force certain lineups or certain rotations to work if they don't necessarily have to if it makes more sense to bring certain guys off the bench then by all means do it and um i I was about to say he's a walking double double i don't actually think that's true but i've never watched him play and been like man he just doesn't have it tonight so um i'm just a huge montrose guy Tyler, you did not have a Clipper in your number one slot for this award. So let's go for it. What are your thoughts on your number one choice for sixth man of the year? Yeah, so I feel like I've made my thoughts on how the Clippers treat their quote-unquote six men. I feel like I've made that pretty clear in the past. And I conceded to put them at two and three. Um, But I've been super impressed with Dennis Schroeder this year. Um, He's been one of the best players in in clutch situations this year with a net rating of 31.1, um, which is otherworldly. Um, he's shooting a career high from three at 36%. He's playing really good defense. Just what he's doing for that team off the bench is a big reason for why they're, they've kind of outperformed expectations this year. Tyler, you mentioned this on our previous podcast, but the three guard lineup of Schroeder, Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Chris Paul is outscoring teams by 29 points per hundred possessions, which is a ridiculous number that would be, I think, more than double the current record for an NBA team. And that three-guard lineup is basically why the Thunder are in the seventh seed right now. It's just rude what those three are doing together. Um, And they're just three really smart versatile players that can guard multiple positions so on defense they're they're switching on the perimeter they're talking they're making the right rotations and then they don't take bad shots they move the ball and just kind of take whatever the defense gives them 
if it's a wide open 12 foot jumper, they'll take it. If it's making the extra pass for a corner three, they'll take it. So just the way that they've been playing has been so impressive for me. Yeah, I uh, I just pulled up Schroeder's stats because whenever I watch him, I'm like, man, it just feels like he's doing so much. His stats are actually the same nearly as they are most years with his shooting's a little better. So maybe seeing the ball go in just kind of mitigates some of the mistakes. My biggest knock on him in previous years would be his decision-making. And even now his turnovers are up like 0.6 from last year, which is not a lot. But yeah, I mean, OKC, the couple times I watched them just happened to be these super grindy games where you can actually trust him with the ball super late. I've always called him German Rondo because of his, he always does that little ball fake thing to a lesser extent and just knows how to get guys. And I think what we've seen with a lot of guys in the NBA these days is that sometimes it takes like five or six years for them to really figure out what kind of player they are. So again, the stats are the same. I just think the fit makes sense and the the shooting percentages are a little better. And uh, I kind of have to give him credit because I always make fun of him on Twitter. (laughs) So this is sort of karma for that. He, he's just genuinely been really good for them. I don't think you can call him German Rondo because he actually tries to score on the fast break as opposed to, you know, passing out of two on zero situations to get an assist <laughs> on the layup. Dude, I wish he stat padded for those because it fits his personality so well, in my opinion. But, you know, good on him. I mean, he's just padding a different <laughs> stat. It's not like he's not stat padding. I'm very pro stat padding. Unless it's Devin Booker. I don't like him. Gosh, a Celtics fan doesn't like Devin Booker stat padding? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sorry. All right, let's move on to most improved player. All three of us had the same player at the top slot, and it's kind of hard to go with anyone else, even though he's fallen off quite a bit recently. Devontae Graham was like a borderline NBA player in his rookie season last year. He had a 43% true shooting mark. And this year, he's been in the top 10 of total assists and top three of three-pointers made for a large percentage of the season. He's gotten the starting point guard job in Charlotte and has played remarkably well alongside Terry Rozier. He's currently averaging just under 19 points and just under eight assists per game. And many people expected the Hornets to be one of the worst teams in basketball, and they're not exactly great but they're certainly miles above the seller in either conference. And Devontae has to get a lot of credit for that. Forget the Clippers. Screw LeBron's resurgence. Luca, who and Devontae Graham is the best story of the season for me. And last year, the, the guy scored four and a half points. Now he's at 19. Two and a half assists to almost eight. 28% from three to 39% on nine and a half attempts a game. Only Steph Curry, who's done it four times, and Paul George, who's done it twice, has shot over 38% on nine threes a game, and no one has ever done it in their second season in the league. I mean, what, what Graham's doing this year is so much fun. The Hornets are a train wreck, and their games are just always end up in chaos, but Graham is the lifeblood of that team. He is their offense, and just seeing him turn it around and kind of kill the notion that old point guards coming out of college can't be productive um, is is really cool. I just want to add one quick thing because you guys covered all the stats. Something I've zeroed in a lot this year is can you trust a player with a basketball? Because we there's been sort of like this overcorrection with using stats and analytics to judge players. And I'm not saying that's happening here, but it happens elsewhere. So my correction to that is is trying to see like, does does the lineup that this guy played in 
does he do, does the lineup do all the work and then he gets open for a shot and he hits it and we go wow 19 points or is he like an active contributor to them being good you can actually trust him with the ball when you watch him so i i think that's a big deal so that's all i wanted to add to the Devonte graham discussion it's funny because i have said on multiple previous iterations of this podcast the sort of awards podcast that I hate voting for second year guys for this award on theoretical ballots just because you're supposed to improve between your rookie year and your sophomore year. But I was mainly saying that in reference to, you know, top level guys and more specifically Deere and Fox. You know, yeah, he's the number five overall pick. He's expected to make a pretty big jump from his rookie season to his second year. But Devontae was a second round pick who was genuinely on the borderline of, you know, having to go overseas to continue his basketball career. And, you know, he's clearly not going to be going to Europe anytime soon after this season. So really, as Tyler said, probably the best story of the NBA season so far. But another great story of the NBA season so far is the player who Tyler and I both had at number two on our theoretical ballots. Brandon Ingram might see his role decrease a little bit in the weeks to come, as it's reported that Zion Williamson is expected to make his season debut exactly one week from when we're recording this today, Wednesday, January the 15th. And even if his role does shrink, he just looks like such a different player in this system than he ever has before in his career. And his scoring average has gone up by a little more than five points a game. He's the focus of this offense, which isn't exactly that much of a compliment given the standings, but he's helped keep them afloat. He has certainly not been a key reason why their defense has struggled so much this season. You know, he's not exactly dragging them out of the bottom five, but he's not the problem on that end of the floor either. And he's made a huge leap and he's not a second year player making that leap. So it feels a little bit more like a classic kind of most improved candidate or the kind of candidate I would look for anyway. Yeah. And he's definitely a better example of a guy who didn't just this isn't just a product of natural progression um his minutes haven't really changed from where they were last year but he just looks like a completely different player he's more confident he looks happier on the court he's scoring seven more points a game an extra assist one and a half rebounds more than last year um but it's all in just how he carries himself on the floor he looks like he's happy to be playing basketball again and even though I, I believe the Pelicans' numbers are worse with him on the floor, um, there are you know multitude of things that go into that. But just the way he carries himself, he's really turned his career projection around because it was starting to look pretty ugly there for a second. My only knock on Ingram, one is I think this award is actually very crowded this year. And two is that I thought the Pelicans would be a little better, which it's not fair to blame any one player. But there's sort of this like middle of the West bloodbath between like, the Suns, was it the Kings, and I guess the Grizzlies are on sort of a surge. But there's all these teams in the Spurs, Blazers, all the same amount of wins. I just don't see any reason why the Pelicans can't compete with those teams that are all sort of floundering. And th- this is really just like an odd man out thing. I had to cut someone. He's shooting 40% from three, which is which is pretty great. He shot 33 last year. So it's really nothing against him. But if I have to cut anyone, it's usually someone who's on an underachieving team. I mean, honestly, the only question mark for Ingram in terms of, you know, him becoming a potential star player was just could he get more consistent with that three point shot? And, you know, now that he's shooting 40 percent, we're seeing the kind of offensive talent he can be when he gets a little bit more room to drive because opposing players have to be that much more afraid of his shot from beyond the arc than they've ever been before. It's 40 percent on like over three times the attempts too. he was attempting 1.8 last year. and It's up to 6.1. 
So Jeremy, your number two player in the most improved race was my number three player who honestly, I probably would have put him at number two had he not missed a recent slate of games due to injury. But what are your thoughts on what you've seen from Pascal Siakam so far this year? Yeah, I actually wanted to put Siakam at number one. And the reason I didn't is not because of the injuries, but we sort of already knew he would be good. His his most improved streak really started kind of at the end of last year and then bled into this year. So we sort of already knew he was this good. But um, who would I compare him to? I, I made some very loose, like, Kevin Garnett comparisons recently. Not that I think that that's his ceiling. But there's there's a lot of lanky players in the NBA, right? But he's just, like, so aggressive in his ability to go around and over guys, run the offense through him. He's got a really nice follow-through on his jump shot. He's, like, just such a multi-tool guy to be an all-star that I just – he benefits more mostly from – he benefits mostly from his body type more than anything else being so long. But, yeah, I mean, just from going from where he was to, like, clear-cut all-star, I think puts him ahead of most guys. But I, uh, I took some points off just because we saw him start this last year. Tyler, at number three, you had Duncan Robinson, who's a bit of a similar story to Devontae Graham, honestly. Basically a borderline NBA player who's, you know, really rocketed up the Heat's rotation so far this year and has been a key cog for them as a three-point bomber who doesn't hurt them enough on defense to take his three-point bombing off the floor. He's just another great story of a guy that, you know, wasn't supposed to make it this far and has worked his butt off and is a key role player in the Eastern contender. Um, And he's a two-way player last year, and now he's starting a bunch of games for the Heat, and he's one of, if not the most efficient shooter in the NBA. He's scoring 1.24 points per possession, which is the 98th percentile in the league, and his 65.8 effective field goal percentage is the 100th percentile in the league. So just... The fact that he's been able to buy into that culture, that team has given him a shot, and he's followed through on production, um, I think is really cool because guys like him, who are you know former D3 transfers, we really don't see them be able to live up to their, their full potential. So Jeremy also went with a role player on an Eastern Conference contender as his number three mm-hmm. most improved player. Okay, Jalen Brown is not a homer pick. His offensive numbers are absolutely ridiculous. I'm bringing them up. They've slumped a little bit now because the Celtics are on a bit of a tough stretch. But um, points per possession is 1.05, top 78%. He was like top 90-ish percent recently. I think he was 10 of 16 tonight, 4 of 8 from 3, 24 points. Jalen Brown has been absurdly efficient on offense up until the last three or four games, which kind of ruined all these stats I was going to bring up. But um, and he's obviously a great two-way player. He sort of famously had that struggle at the beginning of last season where all the headlines were about him not shooting well and not about he had like a hand injury and Celtics Twitter was joking that he had to play with a mouse pad tied to his hand so he could play basketball at all. And he's improved so much more since then. And then over the summer, obviously, he made this jump to where he is now. So I don't... I. He's not as popular as Jason Tatum, and I think that's been the, the the biggest case against him is that he's actually been better. But just the way the way people see him is that he's not as good. So that's kind of been working against him this whole time. And I guess being a fourth year player, it's weird because there's a sweet spot where you don't. I agree with you. It, I don't like picking second year players with this either. 
once you get later in guys' careers, you kind of feel like you know what they are already. But anyways, he's so efficient on offense. I think he should make an all-star team over Tatum. So I think he belongs on the list. I completely agree with you. I think he should make the all-star team over Tatum. And I feel a little bit bad about my role player jab from earlier because honestly, I love Jalen Brown, the basketball player. And I also love Jalen Brown, the human being. So yeah, full props to any Jalen Brown votes and any uplifting of Jalen Brown, period, full stop. But let's move on to coach of the year voting. And there were a few names that we had that were different a little bit further down the ballot, but two of us had the same coach at number one, and that coach is Eric Spolstra of the Miami Heat. I said earlier that I think the Heat are probably the most shockingly positively performing team so far this season, as we've talked about with multiple players in multiple different categories on this list. They've gotten, once again, a whole lot of positive contributions out of undrafted guys and guys that they pulled out of the G League and basically just sort of finding a way to fit Jimmy Butler into all of that in such a positive manner. And it's hard to put Eric Spolstra anywhere outside of the top list of coaches pretty much any year. But I think this year in particular, he's been really spectacular. Yeah, I tend to give a lot of credit to a coach when guys you don't expect to be good are good. Uh, some people were really high on Bam out of bio before this year. So maybe people saw that coming. Personally, did not see that coming. So credit to him there. The Duncan Robinsons, the Kendrick Dunns, a lot of guys you didn't expect or quite frankly had not heard of previous to this year are really good. So, and I, I, I don't know for a fact that this is true, but I like to assume that there's some input from him in as to who Pat Riley keeps and trades and pays and all that stuff. So I think a lot of this is a, is a Eric Spolstra creation. Tyler, you had a different guy at number one on your list. I had him at number two on mine. Jeremy had him all the way down at number five, but still on his ballot, Nick Nurse up in Toronto. Yeah, so I feel like a lot of people have been calling what, you know, some of the defensive schemes and stuff that Nurse has been running as like gimmicks and, you know, not, not you know, quote unquote, not real basketball. But and the point of the coach is to do what he can to help the team win. And some of these, you know, box and ones or zones that he's throwing at teams are really throwing them off. And he's taken the Toronto team back to being contenders in the East sans Kawhi Leonard. And I thought they were going to be awful this year. Um, I was super low on them. So maybe just the fact that he's completely outperformed my expectations is why I just edged him over Spolstra. Um, I love the Spolstra pick. I love the culture he built down there. And just how he's gotten the most out of guys that most people have never even heard of before this year. But just how Nurse was able to take this team that achieved, you know, something that most people never thought they would and then take them to the finals and then bring them back as an Eastern contender, I thought really just kind of gave him the edge. So all three of us had the same coach at number three on our theoretical coach of the year ballot. And oddly enough, it sounds like it might honestly be an insult because the coach that we had there is Mike Budenholzer, the coach of the 36 and six Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah, I just like, so here's my thing with the Bucks. I'm not, it's going to be pretty clear as far as these coaching things go, as I describe them. I'm not like a genius X's and O's guy. Every year I look at the Bucks and I just remember what Jason Kidd did with them, and then I see what Budenholzer did with them, 
and you it's just like a subtraction problem where it's like well if you have 10 and you subtract five you have five and now the books are really good that's how i look at that he just knows how to use Giannis. clearly between him and management or someone they knew the type of players to put around him I didn't think Brooke Lopez would be a fit. Sure enough. I didn't think Robin Lopez was going to add much. Sure enough. He's shooting threes now. Ilya Sova, I was kind of low on. Sure enough. He spreads the floor for them. Uh, again, the more you see role players playing well, the more give credit to coaches. So it just sort of, it just sort of works. I don't, I don't think it's truly a roster that makes sense, which in a lot of cases, like with Philadelphia, you're like, why are there so many tall people? Well, Milwaukee has all these tall people and they're going to win 80 games. So. I think you have to give them some credit. They're currently third in offensive rating and first in defensive rating. And it's always a bit hard to sort of separate the contributions of coaches versus contributions of the most important players. But when you're 36 and six, you kind of have to give credit to everyone. For sure. I didn't know they were that high. That's that's just absurd. Again, it's just like not a roster that blows me away. But, you know, you have an MVP and a coach. Yeah, it's just a continuation, really, of what they've done last year and just kind of improving upon it. And their their net rating of 12 is absurd and I believe four points higher than the next team. Um, and the only reason I slid him in at third instead of one or two was that it just it's essentially the same system, more or less, um, just kind of being affected better or executed better. So Tyler and I had the same coach at number four, but Jeremy, you had him at number two. So I'm going to let you get first crack at talking about him. What have you seen from Nate McMillan and the Pacers so far this year? Okay. So like every week we write our power rankings, right? And I, every week I've had this thing up until recently, now that we're halfway through, this kind of goes out the window, but it was like, look, the Pacers are winning a lot of games. They're not even playing against good teams. So I don't care. And now we're at the point where everyone's played everyone. I, really took a closer look at what the Pacers are doing. And they do basically what every team wants every coach to do, which is like, we have a guy like Sabonis. You just want to run everything through him. So what do you do late games when it's close? They always get him the ball. And you you would think every team would scheme to have the their best player have the ball all the time, and they don't. That alone makes you a top 10 coach if you just know to give the ball to your best player, which sounds stupid, but I, I stand by it. Um, so the way they they work through him is great. They have guys, they have two holiday brothers that I, I get him. I get them mixed up, but it's not drew holiday. I know that much. Those guys are shooting the lights out from three. They don't even have Oladipo. They played a bunch of games where miles Turner wasn't even good. They tried to experiment with their rookie, like Goga, but bit or something. He was kind of in and out. There was all this stuff in flux. I think TJ Warren's a black hole. They make him look good. Uh, the list goes on. Everything that I don't think should work works out just fine. So I, again, it's another role player thing, I guess, but they play smart. They play super hard. They made Jeremy Lamb look good where people sort of doubted him, I think, when he was on Charlotte. So everything that could go right, I think, has gone right. So definitely a lot of credit to coaching there. A lot of people were doubting whether the Pacers would be a playoff team this season. I wasn't quite in that camp, but I thought they could maybe sort of string it along and limp their way to 500 by the time Victor Oladipo came back and then make a playoff push after that. 
and instead they're 25 and 15. So, you know, again, sort of similar situation when you can't really figure out how to divide credit among all those different things. You have to at least look at the guy who's coaching the team. But Jeremy, it's time for your Homer moment once again. The coach that you had at number four on your ballot. Yeah. The inestimable Pete Buttigieg. Oh, I mean, Brad Stevens. Oh, my God. So here's the thing, right? This is only half a Homer pick. Basically, every Celtics fan, including myself, thought the Celtics would have the, about the same record as last year, which was 49 wins, with the only difference being the games aren't miserable to watch. And they're on they're on a little of a, a tough patch now, so maybe we have to avert expectations again. But they were on pace to win a ton of games. If they can maybe ever for once in their lives get healthy, they can get back on pace. But the point being, again, with the role players, they've been really good. Brad Wanamaker, he's trusted him with the ball. He's done a lot of good stuff. The Celtics are somehow really good with some of their interior stats. They've been a top five defense. The rebounding's been great. Uh, everyone hates Ennis Kanter, and he's playing like Kevin McHale out there. And you just, I, I mean, every time the Celtics overachieve, I just have to accredit it to him because they're doing a ton of stuff that I wasn't so sure they'd be able to do, which is like defending the paint. So the way the scheme for that has been really nice. And some of the individual player improvements, I think, traces to the Team USA stuff. But I do think he's a genius at calling the after timeout plays. So I think I just think it's relatively easy to include him as a top five coach still. So at number five on my ballot, I had Rick Carlisle. A lot of the credit for the Mavs season, of course, has to go to Luka Doncic, but the Mavs are still on track to set a record for offensive rating in a season. They're currently at 117.1 per basketball reference. And Chris Stapps has been a little bit disappointing in terms of his counting stats, but he's certainly making a huge impact for this offense just by standing out beyond the three-point line and spacing the floor for his teammates. And given that people have been giving Carlisle uh, comments, let's just say, about his lack of frequency of calling post-ups for Chris Stapps, I mean, the overall success of the offense speaks for itself, and he had the courage, I guess, to go and do that. So credit to him and credit to the Mavericks who are not the most surprising team in the league so far this season, but certainly a team that has drastically outperformed expectations. But neither of you had Carlisle on your list. So let's go to the final coach on the ballot. Tyler, you had the coach of the Memphis Grizzlies, Taylor Jenkins, as number five on your ballot. And We've talked about the Grizzlies so far, but why don't you just put a bow on it? What have you seen from them so far this year? Yeah, we, we mentioned it a bit when we were talking about Ja that their three best players are two rookies and a sophomore. Um, teams constructed that way should not win. Um, this team has been winning lately, and they're uh, if the season ended today, they'd be a playoff team. And we all admittedly thought that they would suck coming into this year. And he's getting great production out of young players and, you know, guys that have just kind of bounced around the league like Solomon Hill and Jonas Valanciunas is looking like a solid center and Dylan Brooks will randomly go off for 35 points. So just the the system that he's installed there is high pace. They're running, they're playing to their, their young guys' strengths. And it's just really impressive, especially for a first year head coach. All right. 
Anything else before we wrap up here? I don't think so. Other than the fact that I think that most coaches are not good. And that makes this one possibly the easiest to uh, narrow it down to a handful. All right. Well, they are Jeremy Stevens and Tyler Metcalf. You can find Tyler on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. You can find Jeremy on Twitter at Taco underscore H-A-U-S. You can also find both of their written work on the hashtag basketball website. They are two of the other power rankers on our weekly power ranking. So of course you can see their writing on those as well as mine. And you can find me on Twitter as well at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either on Twitter or via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.